0: There's this thing called natural capital, and it's the subject of a recently published McKinsey report. McKinsey partner Josh Katz helps us make sense of what it is.
1: A scientist would tell you that it's the stock of our natural resources, so you can think of that as things like air, water, soil, living organisms.
0: Okay, that's the natural. But what about the capital? Well, think of it like a balance sheet that reports a company's assets and liabilities. Planet Earth's balance sheet. One of its liabilities is soil pollution.
1: 50% of our habitable land is dedicated to agriculture and our our plants that grow on that land are dependent on the soil. So if we deplete the health of that soil, it's like depleting our balance sheet or undermining the strength of our assets.
2: It could potentially um, decrease land productivity by 12% and increase food prices by 30% over the next 20, 30 years.
0: That's McKinsey associate partner Caroline DeVitt showing the societal impact of one kind of diminished natural capital. Beyond soil degradation, depletion of natural capital includes...
1: We've seen species collapse or we're at risk of certain species collapse. Biodiversity loss, fresh water consumption, our levels of chemical and plastic pollution, nutrient pollution, and others.
0: Continued deterioration of natural capital, according to the report could trigger extreme changes to the planet, undermining the conditions on which society and the economy have come to rely. For instance, if rainfall patterns and temperatures change so much that existing agricultural lands become unproductive, or cities lose access to water, scientific research suggests the result could be mass migration and humanitarian disaster. This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of the world's toughest business challenges. I'm your host for today, Lucia Rahili. So Caroline, what is at stake for the C-suite if they don't take action now? First of all
2: is um, the business license to operate, be it the social license or the regulatory license that is at risk here. The competitive advantage of that company may also be at risk if nothing is done to address nature. And and finally, even the, the business of the company may be at risk of what we call physical or transition risks.
0: Take Europe, for example. Recently, the EU Parliament discussed the possibility that companies demonstrate the products they export to the EU are not contributing to deforestation
2: which is extremely complicated to do because you have to look at the entire value chain. But that could be potentially a risk for businesses.
0: While not a business, the Netherlands exposed itself to risk and had to take drastic steps to comply with European legislation on nitrogen reduction. The excess nitrogen it created killed marine life and drove biodiversity declines affecting insects and birds. The consequences were licenses for nitrogen-emitting activities, such as construction, are harder to obtain, causing project delays. Speed limits on Dutch roads were reduced to help ease short-term emissions of nitrogen. And some areas in the Netherlands are considering reducing livestock numbers by 30%. These actions have triggered widespread protests. Sharp course corrections can come with large societal costs. Taking action proactively to preserve natural capital can prevent such shocks. And some companies are heeding the call. Working a lot with
2: investors over the past uh, months and even past year, there is definitely appetite and um, a view that by investing into nature, you could both achieve environmental and financial returns.
1: The vast majority of Fortune 500 companies have recognized climate change in their disclosures or set net zero targets. And what I would say there is being early can present opportunities.
0: Opportunity, like if your company is the first to create projects that will generate
1: what may become biodiversity credits someday, or if you're very early in addressing risks that are in your supply chain because of nature, I think that will prove a competitive advantage In the medium term maybe even sooner.
0: Another competitive advantage is tech innovation. There's lots of it happening in agriculture.
1: I mean we've seen even in the last few years the ability to more specifically apply nutrients and more specifically place seeds and what we call precision or smart agriculture. And by the way policymakers have recognized the power of that too. And so doing that should enable us to have even greater yields, for example, with even fewer resources or different types of resources. So we've even seen the methane reduction from using direct seeded rice versus flood irrigated rice is significant. We have hundreds of millions of farmers around the world, many of whom don't have access yet to some of these technologies, but will, as we, as we get there, I think that's very exciting.
0: Also exciting? Tackling the risk around plastics. Actually, 85% of the
1: ocean waste today is coming from plastic.
0: And some companies are seizing the opportunity to mitigate that kind of waste.
1: We've seen many actions like changing the packaging, reducing the quantity of plastic in the packaging, finding ways to increase collection and recycling rates of the packaging. So there are many actions that companies can take and especially if they take a kind of holistic or circular view of their of their impact, which we've we've seen more and more of.
0: Other promising actions have to do with shrinking food loss. Reducing food waste or food loss
2: actually within the at the manufacturing uh, stage and then food waste at the end of the of the value chain is a big big um, lever here. If you wanted to actually decrease um, the natural capital depletion, uh, it could actually be done with like improved inventory management practices, some
0: advanced analytics. And what about test and learn? Is that appropriate in
1: this context? I think we absolutely will have to test and learn. We are going to have to recognize that we don't have the perfect solutions, but that doesn't mean we can sit and wait for the perfect solution.
0: Josh and Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Always a pleasure.
0: Merci. We cannot sit and wait for the perfect solution to a human capital problem either. In the United States, there's a record number of K through 12 teachers who are leaving their jobs. What could make them stay? McKinsey partner Jake Bryant has answers. Jake, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Jake, what does K-12 through 12 education mean to you personally? Have you had exposure to the classroom beyond you know being in the classroom yourself growing up?
3: I have. I was a middle school teacher early in my career, and I had the opportunity to teach in a low-income school that, against the odds, was one of the highest performing in California at that time. I was a solid novice teacher, but it was amazing to be around peers there who loved their students but also loved the craft of teaching and were relentless on getting better and helping each other get better. And I benefited a lot from their coaching.
0: Talk to us about Turnover among K through twelve teachers in the United States. What does the research tell us about what attrition looks like?
3: Turnover has reached all time highs. We've just gotten some new data back as to what exactly happened last summer, and it's not good. Turnover overall is up uh, four percentage points. Up to ten percent of uh, teachers left their jobs. Uh, last summer into the fall. But when you look at districts that are lower income or more urban, that figures as high as 15%. So you had a cadre of 100 teachers, and now you only have 85 coming into the school year.
0: What's driving teachers out the door?
3: I think the overall day-to-day experience of teachers can be pretty bipolar where when you're with your class and it's going well and kind of things are coming together, it's absolutely one of the most thrilling and joyful and life-giving experiences possible. But then beyond that, there's so much more and most of it's quite challenging. You have undue kind of administrative burden, maybe your school, it has enough teachers for now, but you don't have enough cafeteria workers or aides. And so then you have to take time away from your preparation to go meet the bus or oversee recess. Or maybe your school doesn't actually have quite enough teachers and the time you were intending to prepare your lesson, you have to go cover a class where your colleague's absent or that position hasn't been filled. So I think it's a little disorienting, this wonderful classroom experience contrasted with these beyond-classroom challenges that you face. The experience of teaching is often quite isolating. You're in a school, there's maybe 25, 50, 100 other teachers there, depending on how big it is. But you don't actually interact with each other as professionals all that often in many cases. So you're not getting feedback, ideas, you're not getting to workshop your lessons with a colleague as you might in other uh, white collar professions.
0: How does the talent market look for teachers? There must be lots of openings. Is that changing dynamics for teachers who do decide to look for new opportunities?
3: I think it is. I think if you're a high quality teacher, trained, experienced, it's a bit of a sellers market for your labor and that's great we want teachers to feel valued you're recruited like you know star athletes or investment bankers or whomever uh, your analogy for the the most hard to get and, and attractive employees the tricky thing though is the districts don't have that much flexibility typically to do things differently it's hard to hire as far ahead in the calendar year as you would like to be. In some states and some districts now hiring bonuses, if you would, but that's the minority of places. So I do think there's a lot more competition to hire teachers, but on average, not a lot of flexibility to, to do things differently than you've done before.
0: And how big a role do factors like geography, school type, the age of a particular teacher play in how teachers interpret their professional experience?
3: I think they play a pretty significant factor. Just in the data, the differences between higher income and lower income schools in terms of the actual turnover are pretty stark. And a second phenomenon that we observe is teachers leaving lower income schools and and migrating to higher income ones over the course of their career. Certainly there's needs in higher income schools. There's impact to be had. We don't begrudge that, but structurally it's unfortunate and it's also preventable. A lot of teachers get into teaching because they want to have that social impact to serve the students who need them most. And then because those schools aren't well-resourced or as other factors around it. You come up in your mid-20s, three or four years into your profession, look around and say, you know, I like this job, but it could be a lot easier in the suburb down the road.
0: What can be done to motivate teachers to stay in their jobs?
3: The first answer is obvious, which is that we just need to pay teachers more. There's countries where someone will think seriously, I'm good at math, should I be a engineer or a teacher? And there's not a compensation differential or even compensation as a teacher might be slightly preferable. We're nowhere close to that. I mean the, the big picture hope would be that we can design the role itself to be more sustainable, more um, life-giving, to move some of the administrative burdens off of teachers just to re-engineer some of those working conditions so that I'm more collaborative with my colleagues, that I'm getting more feedback and growth, and the drudgery of it goes away. And then maybe we give teachers sabbaticals, we give them opportunities to to shift towards more of a curriculum-oriented role or more of a coaching role, to make it more flexible and dynamic and to move through a series of experiences that help you sharpen your craft, but get more variety.
0: Anything you can think of, Jake, that you wanted to get out there that you didn't have the opportunity to?
3: There's a ton of reason for optimism. There's schools where those administrative burdens are taken well off of a teacher's shoulders and there's dedicated staff to tackle them. There's schools where that culture of collaboration, colleagueship, mutual improvement, and professionalism are deeply embedded and, and very profound and make everybody better at their jobs and make those jobs more exciting. We have many bright spots, and it's fully feasible in my mind that those bright spots spread.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, Jake.
3: Thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahilly, And I'm Roberta Fassaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.